Shalom and welcome to the Jewish mind where the growth of modernity meets timeless wisdom and solutions of Judaism. The title of this lecture is Eunum Pluribus, which is a reversed edition of the Latin phrase that is found on the Great Seal of the United States and on almost all of the currency of the United States. The Latin phrase on the Great Seal means one out of many. However, what we are going to explore is the greater phrase of many out of one. Why, you ask, is many out of one the greater phrase? In Kabbalah and Chassidus, it is explained that the simplicity that cannot embrace complexity lacks in its simplicity. When simplicity is stuck within its simplicity and it defies being manifested and expressed within its details, the simplicity is very limited and is not very useful. For example, Creativeness, in essence, is about being able to touch simplicity. At the heart of all creativity is the beauty of connecting with simplicity. The aha moment is what creativity is all about. And this aha moment is always a flash of simplicity through which everything falls into place. However, getting stuck in the aha moment without being able to work out the complex, intricate details leaves the creative moment quite useless. Let's look at it from a practical perspective. There are people who wear a huge amount of hats, serving as so many different people for so many people and situations and they keep it all together with such ease. Then there are those who get completely flustered with having to wear even just a few more than one hat and who feel completely confused and drained by this, bordering at their wit's end. According to Kabbalah and Hasidus, the secret of calmly wearing many hats lies in whether a person can embrace his simplicity, which in its own defies all forms and precisely because of this it can express itself in every form. When a person truly accepts and embraces the simplicity of who he is, then he already has embraced who he is as a son, a sibling, a friend, a co-worker, an employee, an employer, a spouse and a parent. He has embraced who he is as a Jew, as a professional and as a member of society. When this is not so, then he hasn't truly embraced the depths of his simplicity. Therefore, he is flustered and lost when new situations present themselves to him and he wonders who is he supposed to be in this unprecedented situation in his life. Thus, the greater phrase of life is when a person can embrace the true depths of his unum simplicity, and then from this unum simplicity 
He lives deplorable demands that life has for everyone. We will return to this concept with great clarity at the end of the lecture. In the spirit of Eunum Pluribus, we are going to have a pluribus of introductions to this lecture, and then throughout the lecture, you will see how they are all of the one simplistic Unum. The, the two dominating foods of today's Seder table are the three matzot and the four cups of wine. The reason that I say today's Seder table is because in the times of the Holy Temple, it was the roasted meat from the Passover sacrifice that was the most dominating food of the Seder table. The difference between the three matzot and the four cups of wine is at the Seder table is that eating the matzah is a biblical commandment while drinking the four cups of wine is a rabbinical commandment which leads us to exploring the difference between the biblical teachings and the rabbinical teachings of the Torah which primarily manifest themselves in the difference between what is called the written law which are the five books of Moses the prophets and the scriptures and the oral law which primarily began with the Mishnah then the Brightot and Toseftot notes on the Mishnah which served as the foundation of the Talmud after which came the commentators on the Talmud and the codifiers of the laws that were established throughout the Talmud throughout the generations. On the one hand, the Talmud is the source of defining all the biblical laws that are meant to be extrapolated from the verses of the written law. However, there is an even greater ongoing wealth of the, ta the teachings in the oral law, which are the rabbinical ordinances and fences that our sages placed around the, the biblical law in order so that we can have a perfect Torah protected for the imperfect life of a human being. To understand the mystical difference between the biblical and rabbinical commandments, we will first explore the mystical difference between the two biblical categories of commandments which are the 248 commandments, the do's, and the 365 prohibitions, the don't do's. One of the most notable differences between a commandment and a prohibition is that we make a blessing before performing a commandment, while we don't make a blessing before observing a prohibition. For example, it is a commandment to eat matzah on the Seder night and therefore, besides making the regular blessing we do before eating bread, challah, or matzah, which is the blessing of hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we also make a second blessing before eating the matzah on the Seder night, which is the blessing of who commanded us to eat matzah. Now, for example, it is a prohibition to eat blood, which is why all kosher meat and fowl need to be salted in order to have the salt extract the blood. However, we do not make a blessing when salting the meat to extract the blood, 
nor do we make a special blessing on our observing the prohibition of not eating blood when eating kosher meat. In Kabbalah and Hasidus, this that we make a blessing on a commandment and not on a prohibition points to the heart of the difference between a commandment and a prohibition. Mystically speaking, making a blessing is all about drawing in, internalizing, and digesting divine light. A commandment is all about actively engaging in divine acts in order to bring divine light into the world. This is why we must first make a blessing before performing a commandment. However, observing a prohibition is not about drawing divine light into the world. Rather, it is about cutting down the evil forces that exist within the world. We break the evil forces by overcoming our temptations of egocentric self-seeking for pleasure and refraining from engaging with them. On a deeper level, we cut down the evil forces by not allowing them to nurture from the source of light, which is the divine light. However, how can darkness ever nurture from light? The answer is that while it is true that from the linear finite light, which has a clear distinction between good and evil, and from which only good and humble can nurture from, the evil forces cannot nurture from this linear finite light. However, to the circular infinite light, there is no top or bottom, front or back, or any definitive distinction of good and evil. To the infinite and to the circular, all is equally naught. Thus, the evil forces fight to steal nourishment from the circular infinite light rather than to barely survive from its allotted offshoot of a ray from the backside of the linear finite light. Let's understand why if they don't steal, then the evil forces only have an offshoot of a ray from the backside of the linear finite light. You see, the linear finite light also wants the evil forces to exist, but not for the existence of evil. Rather, it is only for the existence of freedom of choice, so that our choosing goodness would be meaningful. Therefore, the linear finite light gives evil forces a backhanded minuscule amount of its exterior divine light in order that the evil forces can exist. However, the evil forces want to overpower goodness, and to do so, they arrogantly fight for sustenance, power, and dominance from the higher circular infinite light. Now we understand the mystical purpose of the 365 prohibitions is to cut the evil forces away from being able to nurture from the higher circular infinite light. A Jew observing the prohibitions accomplishes that through the Jew who has within him a peace of God and who commands the primary essential desire and purpose of God creating the world which is so that the Jewish people study the Torah with their human minds and physically perform and observe the Torah's 613 commandments. Therefore, 
by a Jew refraining from engaging in the prohibitions of self-seeking egocentric pleasures, which is the domain of the evil forces, the Jew stops the circular infinite light from being accessible to the egocentric evil forces, and he makes the circular infinite light only accessible to the humble forces of goodness and holiness. What this tells us is that the 248 commandments are connecting only with the linear finite light, while the 365 prohibitions are dealing with the circular, the higher circular infinite light. Now, by definition, the circular infinite light is circular, encompassing, and infinite. Therefore, we understand that even with the 365 prohibitions, making this circular infinite light only accessible to goodness and kindness, nevertheless, the circular infinite light cannot be internalized and digested by the finite world. Rather, it remains only encompassing of the finite world. This now explains why, with the 365 prohibitions, A, we do not make a blessing, and B, we do not connect by engaging, but rather through refraining from engaging. Because we are dealing with the higher circular infinite light, which cannot be drawn in, internalized, and digested through a blessing. And because the humility needed to connect with the circular infinite light is of total submissiveness and acceptance, rather than of active participation and engagement. Therefore, with a prohibition, we do not engage, but we refrain, and we do not make a blessing. Now let us return to what we began pointing out, that the difference between the eating of the three matzot and the drinking of the four cups of wine at our Seder is that eating the matzah is a biblical commandment, while drinking the wine is a rabbinical ordinance. To understand the difference between a biblical commandment and a rabbinical commandment, I want to briefly point out for you the difference between the biblical commandment of lighting the menorah every day in the holy temple when it stood in Jerusalem, and of the rabbinical commandment of lighting the menorah all over the world on the eight days of Hanukkah. The biblical commandment of lighting the menorah in the holy temple must be done during the daytime and must be done inside the holy temple, while the Hanukkah menorah must be lit after nightfall and should be lit outside of the front door on the left side. The biblical commandment is telling us that we can only actively engage with light and inside while the rabbinical commandment is telling us to actively engage with the darkness outside and the left side. Even more so, when performing a rabbinical commandment, we make a blessing. Thus, what the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidus understand from this is, that as the exile progressed and greater Jewish self-sacrifices has been activated, Rabbinical commandments and ordinances were developed and has connected us with the higher circular infinite light in a way that we can actively engage with it.
rather than just submissively accept it and that we can now digest it internalizing the circular infinite light into the world and therefore we can now make a blessing over the circular infinite light drawn into the world by the rabbinical commandment. How is this possible to do when the foundation of having a relationship with the divine light is humility? The greater the divine light, the greater the humility needed to the point that in connecting with the higher circular infinite light, the humility needed is the absolute submissiveness of sit and do not do. So how is it that by doing a rabbinical commandment, not the sitting and not doing the refraining, but the doing a rabbinical commandment, we can actually digest. Doing is less humility. Not doing, just sitting humbly, is a greater humility. How can it be that the lower humility takes us to a deeper connection with the divine light than the higher humility does? We will need to return to this question in a few moments. However, first, a few more of the Eunum Pluribus introductions are needed. We started with explaining that the difference between the biblical and the rabbinical layers to the Torah is the same difference between the written law and the oral law. One of the most distinct differences between the written law and the oral law is that what is documented by the written law in the simplest brevity is then extrapolated by the oral law into the lengthiest of details. The further we go on into the generations of the evolution of the oral law, the more we find this happening. Greater, greater length of greater, greater amounts of details. However, the first layer, layer of the documented oral law, which is the Mishnah, is documented primarily as short case law. The author of the Mishnah, which was Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, would come to his yeshiva, he would bring his book called the Mishnah, he would teach a Mishnah that he wrote and would then explain details of the case law, which his students wrote down at greater length as case laws called Brita. The next primary document, the documentation of the oral law was the Talmud, which has pages and pages of extrapolation of details on each and every line of the Mishnah. Then there are the even lengthier extrapolations of the commentaries and the codifiers documented generation after generation. Thus, the biblical written law is of the brief unum category from which the pluribus of the oral law was extrapolated. Now in Latin, ex means to come from, to be extrapolated from. In Latin, the abbreviation for ex is just e. Thus the Latin phrase of eunum pluribus now Jewishly means that from the written law's simplicity was extrapolated the complexity and the comp multiplicity of the oral law's details. And what the Latin phrase means is that from the simplicity of the biblical came the multiplicity of the rabbinical, which we now know to also mean 
that from the simplicity of internalizing and digesting only the linear finite light came the greater heights of internalizing and digesting also the higher circular infinite light. That's what happened when we went from just the biblical commandments to the rabbinical commandments and ordinances. Another introduction now takes us to focusing on what wine represents in the Jewish law and in Jewish mysticism. In Jewish law, wine means joy. This is why it is obligatory to have wine for Kiddush on Shabbat and on holidays at the meal because, and I quote the sages, one does not say song, meaning joy, but with wine. Additionally, to fulfill the law of having joy by holiday meals of festivities, our sages teach us that, and again I quote, there is no joy but with wine. So we see that wine in Jewish law represents joy. Here our mystical teaching brings the opening two verses of the Book of Songs. I believe that the reason why the Rebbe chose these specific, specific verses to expound upon concerning the mystical meaning of wine is because Rashi, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, the classical commentator, explains the verse to be a metaphor to the details of the secret of the written law being extrapolated into the oral law. Let us see the verse. Solomon begins the book of songs with, The song of songs which is Solomon's, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Rashi, who defines his commentary as, and I'm quoting Rashi here, I have not come but to explain the simple meaning of the verse. That's how Rashi sees his job. So let's see how he explains the simple meaning of these opening two verses of the Book of Songs. I'm going to quote a piece of the Rashi. This is the explanation of its apparent meaning. The figure of speech was used because he gave them his Torah, he means God, gave them his Torah and spoke to them face to face. And that love is still more pleasant to them, the Jewish people, than any pleasure. And they are assured by him, God, that he will appear to them to explain to them the secret of its reasons and its hidden mysteries. And they entreat him to fulfill his word. And this is the meaning of what King Solomon is saying. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Our sages explain that the reason why wine is a beverage of joy is because, and I'll quote here, at first the wine was hidden within the grapes, and then it was brought from the hidden to the revealed. And when the hidden comes to revelation, this causes joy. Wow, once again we have here the concept of wine being the revelation of the details and of the secrets that are hidden within the simplicity of the written law and in the grape being revealed and that this is what joy and wine is all about. Let's move on to the next introduction to explain this a bit clearer. Let us explain this a bit clearer with understanding what Kabbalah and Hasidah see as the two greatest faculties of the soul.
The two greatest faculties are pleasure and joy. The difference between the two is that pleasure is an experience in which the person remains peacefully and deeply content within himself. It is a deep experience of simplicity and contentment. One of the purest examples of this is when a parent sees that his children are getting along and playing nicely together. What happens then for the parent? Pleasure. How does this pleasure happen? A sheer expression of calmness and contentment washes over the person and overflows from his soul. This is an experience of simplicity from the depths of the soul. Now joy, on the other hand, is the polar opposite experience in which the soul is driving for an outward expression of self in dancing, talking and doing and in details of expression and revelation. True joy isn't quiet and simple. Rather, it is all about being expressed and revealed in the outward details of the person. Now, while Hasidus speaks of pleasure being the inner essence dimension of the crown of the soul, which is higher, and joy being the outer expressive layer of the crown of the soul, which is lower, nevertheless, there is a power that joy has over pleasure. Yes, you see the point here. The power that joy has over pleasure is the power of eonen pluribus. The two layers of the crown of the soul, pleasure and joy, express themselves in the two intellects of the brain of the soul, wisdom and understanding. Wisdom, like pleasure, is the power of simplicity. The intellectual power of wisdom is to find the simple nucleus of the concept. Understanding is like joy, which wants to extrapolate, express, and reveal all the hidden details of wisdom. Here too, even though wisdom is the first intellect and inner intellect, which is higher than understanding, which understanding is the second and expressive intellect, nevertheless there is a power to understanding over wisdom, which is again the power of eonum pluribus. Let us now understand the deepest power of eonum pluribus. When one first studies the Mishnah, he understands the bottom line of the Mishnah in understanding the simple nucleus of the case law. However, then one studies all the Talmud, the commentators, and the codifiers of the Jewish law that is extrapolated from this Mishnah. Now, he returns back to the Mishnah again. However, what he has now when he returns to the Mishnah is the far deeper simplicity and the far deeper essence nucleus of the Mishnah precisely because he has already studied and extrapolated all the details of understanding from the nucleus wisdom. Kabbalah and Hasidus discusses this as two different simple essence nucleuses of an intellect. The first is the nucleus of wisdom which is the simple unextrapolated nucleus. The second is the deeper essence of the nucleus, whose simplicity is the depths of an essence simplicity, precisely because it has expressed itself in all its magnitude of details. Thus, what we have now 
is that in the final analysis, the power of Eunim Pluribus is that the deepest essence of Unim is only reached through the Unim being extrapolated into the Pluribus. One last introduction, which connects this all with the Torah portion that we will read this week, which is called Mitzora, leprosy, and defines the process of purification for a person who had leprosy. Leprosy is a skin blemish and has different laws and different names for the different types of leprosy, whether they are on the scalp where there is hair, or whether it be on the skin where there isn't hair, and of the different discolorations of the skin and hair. Kabbalah and Hasidis define the spiritual disease of leprosy the way it happens on the soul level of the person. The teaching says that leprosy is a disease that happens when there is, I'm going to quote here a Kabbalistic sentence, when there is the absence of the intellects of wisdom, which then causes an ebb yearning without a flow return. Let's see what this means. What this means is that the expressive and revelation process of the intellects of understanding creates within the soul a strong yearning to be close to God. This yearning comes from the intellect of understanding, truly understanding and internalizing the details of the person's own existence, of God, and of the relationship between God and He. However, it also comes from the intellects of understanding's sense of self which embraces his own desire and yearning of what he wants, which is to be close to God. The intellects of wisdom has a far deeper and greater humility to God than the intellects of understanding does. On an intellectual level, understanding demands that we roll up our sleeves and engage our power of understanding through the divide and conquer technique digesting detail after detail combing out and defining the properties and parameters of each detail this is how the intellect of understanding engages and conquers the intellectual concept wisdom on the other hand demands more of a silencing of the mind and a humble opening of the mind for a flash of creativity from a higher intelligence to enter into his mind. Thus, while the intellects of understanding creates a strong yearning to be closer to God based on a strong sense of self and what the self wants, the intellects of wisdom create a humble acceptance of what God wants and what God wants is for the soul to return downward into the body and into the physical world to transform the world into a home for God. What this means in a more simple language is that the healthy blood flow of the soul is that we direct our yearnings and feelings for God to flow into receptive vessels which are the letters of our Torah study, both the written law and the oral law. We need to take all our feelings and yearnings to be closer to God and bring it down into what we do and how we study Torah. When the humility of the intellects of wisdom are missing, then we don't want to redirect the upward yearning and intensity of feelings into a practical flow of serving God down here through Torah study. Rather, 
we just want to intensify our feelings and to drown in our feelings and we want only what we want which is to spiritually feel close to God. This obstruction of the healthy and functional blood flow within the soul due to the lack of humility in wanting what we want instead of focusing on what God wants us to come back down here and take all our ebb of yearning to be close to Him and use it in Torah study down here and in doing goodness this obstruction due to the lack of humility is what according to Kabbalah and Hasidis causes the outbreak of leprosy with this mystical understanding of leprosy we can now return to our original question true there is a power to understanding over wisdom which is the same power that joy has over pleasure which is the power that pluribus has over unum we have defined this power as the power of the truest essence simplicity of the unum nucleus which can only be experienced after the total extrapolation and expressiveness of the pluris, pluribus in our relationship with God this means that the power of joy is the power of a deeper connection and relationship with the higher essence of God now the question we asked was that the foundation of such a relationship with God is humility and the vice of joy understanding and pluribus is that it lacks the necessary humility to step out of what I want and out of what I understand in order to embrace what God wants this is the question we asked earlier and now we can return to this so the question is can joy be humble Isaiah states and humble ones shall increase joy in the Lord this verse connects joy with humility the question is being that the simple and practical experience of joy is one of expansion and expression more than it is of humility why then does Isaiah specifically connect joy with humility our sages state in ethics of our fathers who is rich he who is happy satisfied with his lot the secret behind being happy and satisfied with one's lot is humility the driving force behind not being happy with our lot is the arrogant feeling of I deserve more being satisfied and being happy are synonymous with being humble thus the secret of true joy is all about being humble okay so the cause of true joy is being humble however we clearly stated that the experience of joy that which we are experiencing once we have joy is the expression of self thus we need to explore further into what humility is in the teachings of the Torah the Torah speaks of humility when God speaks of Moses the verse states and this man Moses was exceedingly humble more so than any person on the face of the earth the mystical emphasis here is explained that Moses the greatest of all men who spoke to God face to face was humble to every single human being on the face of the earth regardless of their race gender or religion 
The reason why Moses was so humble was simply because of two facts as Moses saw them. A. Moses' special gifts, talents, and spiritual powers were not his own, but were given to him by God. And B. Were they given to someone else, Moses believed the other person may have developed them better and used them to greater heights than he, Moses, did. This is how Moses saw the facts, and therefore, even while Moses embraced who he was and the position he had, nevertheless, Moses was the absolute epitome of humility before each and every person on the face of the earth. The important truth of humility is that it is not based on falsely denying our virtues, our gifts, our talents, and our position of responsibility and greatness. Quite the contrary is the truth. Precisely by being thoroughly honest with ourselves of all the goodness and good qualities that we have is precisely how we can then embrace true humility before all the people on the face of the earth. What we are seeing here is that true humility is not by hiding in our shallow unum, but rather it is precisely through our accepting and embracing the pluribus of who we are that we can experience true humility. When we truly see that, yes, we have a wealth of pluribus to ourselves, and when we truly see that all our wealth of pluribus comes only from the deepest essence of unum, God, only then can we truly be humble. And this being humble entails being humble before each and every person on the face of the earth, regardless of their race, religion, color, and gender. This humility does not deny us from embracing our expansiveness and expression of all the beautiful details of who we are. Rather, it feeds off our embracing all of the beautiful details of who we are. This is the deepest experience of humility, which is precisely all about embracing and experiencing the expansive and expressive joy of who we are. This is what Isaiah is saying, that precisely through humility we add joy to God. Interesting enough, Isaiah is specific here in using the ineffable tetragrammaton name of God in this verse. There are many different names to God. However, the ineffable tetragrammaton name of God is the name used for the highest essence unim of God. The reason for Isaiah doing so is because he is speaking of the humility of joy, which is the humility that specifically comes only from embracing our pluribus which is the only way to connect to the highest essence unim of who we are, which then connects us to the ultimate essence unim of God, the ineffable tetragrammaton name. In closing, I want to discuss the answer to how it is precisely the expressive expansiveness of joy that embraces the deepest humility, which connects us to the highest circular infinite light and even higher to the essence unum of God. This answer, my friends, is the most important lesson for our generation from this entire lecture. What we see from everything that we explored here 
is that humility is not humiliation again humility is not humiliation and then humility is not about being a doormat for anyone our generation suffers so deeply from not having a healthy identity of self and from not having a healthy sense of self-respect at large our generation swings like a pendulum between egocentrism and narcissism to insecurity and self-deprecation. To our generation, we perceive humility as humiliation, and because of this, we swing like Tarzan in a jungle of confusion between not wanting to be humiliated unto ourselves and not being okay with false self-grandiose. We cannot endure neither the humility, the humiliation, nor the false perception of self-grandiose for long. And therefore, we are swinging in a sort of bipolar fashion from one to the other in great pain and distress. This is why our generation at large is self-medicating in a desperate effort to free ourselves from depression and in a desperate plea to experience some joy. The secret of joy is humility, and the secret of humility is to fully embrace that God has gifted each and every one of us with an extreme pluribus of talents and of beautiful details to who we are. Yes, they're both true. These gifts are ours, but yes, they are gifts from God. So, this Passover, as we sit like royalty at our stated table, drinking the four cups of wine, let us invite our inner child to the table, and let us allow our inner child to express his four questions of all that he has been through, his confusion and fears of abandonment, his confusion of his not being lovable, his confusion of being pushed into being hidden, and his confusion of not being worthy of true joy. Let our inner child come to the table and ask those painful four questions of confusion. Then, let us spend the rest of the Seder with our inner child apologizing to him or her for our adult's misunderstanding and confusion between slavery and freedom. Let us embrace our inner child and commit to him that we will never again mistake humiliation for humility and that we will never again mistake joy for arrogance. Most important of all, let us immediately live up to this commitment and truly be happy at the Seder thanking God for the pluribus of gifts, talents, and beautiful details that God personally handcrafted into each and every one of us, making us who we are. Friends, modernity offers growth, and growth comes with challenges. Judaism offers timeless divine solutions. The Jewish mind is where modernity meets Judaism.